0: But in terms of communication systems, it's really mostly satellites that tend to be affected by it, and you're literally looking at a bit of an avalanche effect. There, you're sort of seeing the avalanche, you know, triggered up the hill somewhere, and you know it's coming, and you know it's going to shower some snow on you, but you can't really tell how much snow it's going to be and what exactly it's going to hit, because that's going to depend on what it's going to hit, when it's going to get down, and. Similarly, we're seeing those eruptions on the sun. That's the observable, but we have nothing really in between that can tell us, uh, you know, how many particles were released and how it's all behaving. And so we kind of have to wait until it gets here until we can tell <laughs> what the impact is. But by that point, it's a bit too late.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Pink podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Russ White, Jaap Akas, and Ulrich Speidel about the danger of sunspot activity and its effect on power networks and digital communications. Hello, everyone. Today, we've got Russ White, Ulrich Speidel, and yeah,
2: Russ, hello. Hey, George. How are you this morning? I don't think it's morning for you, is it? It's afternoon yeah, or evening or it's midnight evening. or it's, it's midnight or something. It's,
1: it's evening, but it's okay. It's a pleasant evening. Russ, can you just give people some context?
2: Who are you? I am just a routing geek, nothing else. I've never written any books, done nothing. Just So you're a <laughs> routing person and a podcaster
3: and I an author.
2: Said- I'll just say that.
1: (laughs) Ulrich, welcome. Thanks, George. Well, who
0: am I? I'm a, uh, a, formally speaking a senior lecturer in computer science at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. In terms of my background, I've done a little bit of everything and a lot of nothing, (laughs) as people might say. So I've been interested in communications for a long time and been working on various aspects of it all over the Protocol stack and, and uh, things around, and um,
1: more likely on satellite communications. And Jaap, welcome, Jaap Ackerhuis.
3: Hi, uh, yes, I'm Jaap Ackerhuis uh, from Amsterdam, and uh, I'm actually dabbling in the internet for the last 40 years or so in various positions. And uh, now uh, still Kind of working for an LNet labs, I mean, the guys, DNS stuff and secure uh, routing, things like that. I do that two days a week, but still trying to retire, although I mean, that doesn't work out that well. And, uh,
2: so that's, <laughs> that's because there's always more stuff to stuff in DNS. Now you
1: yeah you're hiding your light under a bushel as we say because i have visited your office at nl net labs and up on the top of the bookcases you have antenna that appear to have been made by stripping wiring flex out of the wall and wrapping it around cardboard boxes you are a radio astronomer aren't you
3: well kind of it's uh, how that happened is that i was uh I mean, I've got friends in California, and they run the SO satellite. As they say, they run, uh, they're astronomers in the day shift uh, because they look at the sun. And one of the, uh, Debbie Sure you probably know her from the software two stage years ago, there had some problems getting some stuff working, and she asked me to help out, and that's how I got involved in all this solar business the last 20 years or
1: so. So this is specifically solar astronomy?
3: Yeah, yeah, and this has to do with what we call solar weather. I mean, to predict the sun-wind, which is lasting in the Earth and other parts of the, of the universe.
1: So I was stupid enough to write a blog piece called Good Day Sunshine. I just couldn't go past the Beatles song. And here we are, and I've called this one on my side, Here Comes the sunspot because I couldn't go past the Beatles thing. The point was that I was really intrigued by a post I saw back in May that was from the U.S. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, who run a space weather prediction center and I like to imagine someone like Bill Murray floating in front of a green screen showing signs as the solar wind approaches us, but solar weather is actually a really serious thing, isn't it?
3: Yes, kind of. It's also surrounded by myths. I mean, people make a lot of fuss about solar weather and referring to the current on the incident as being, oh, how, how the world's going to end if it happens again. But, Yes, it, being so much unpredictable for the real exciting explosions, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, people tend to overestimate what's happened and, and so random I mean, and tend to make a lot of uh, noise. I mean, it must be the solar weather, climate change and stuff like that. comes into mind that people are exaggerating uh, the influence. But yeah, so so maybe we ought to, maybe
2: we ought to like back off and talk about just for a second, like what we're talking about. Like, what impact will the solar storm have? Because we don't know how bad it is, it could be or may not be. What does it cause? For people who don't know. Well, what's happening is that the sun is kind of
3: a violent place to be there. What happens is that often there are what they call coronal mass evictions. Suddenly it spools out a lot of the ions and uh, other stuff, gamma rays and so on. And most of that is actually you don't notice on Earth uh, because the magnetic field on Earth actually sidetracked the stuff. But you see uh, at the poles, what you see as the auroras in the northern and southern poles, that's part of it. But sometimes these things, explosions are very... They are very heavy and then enormous impulse of uh, x-rays uh, hitting yurts or parts of yurts or missing yurts. It depends on where it goes to because it's actually pretty local. And it's always followed by a stream of, for a couple of days, what they call... Uh, the sun flares, which is very high sun with ions, and that can cause some interesting disturbance on radio traffic and uh, also on the electrical grids. There's a lot of weird things happening there. It has to do with how the ionosphere and especially the E and F layers I behave, and, uh, so,
1: which get influenced by this. So Ulrich? You also wrote about this on an APNIC blog, and you observed that there's a differential effect on different orbital planes of satellites. So we're kind of mentally now dividing them up into GEO, MEO, and LEO. And there would be a general sense the lower is safer. But to some extent, all of these systems are potentially at risk from this kind of event.
0: Short answer, yes, because all of them pretty much run outside the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is where a lot of the um, actual attenuation happens and where a lot of the charged particles that the sun throws our way get absorbed. But let me step back for a moment. If we look back at where the first sort of incidences of technical interference by solar winds, charged particles, CMIs, and so on, were uh, on installations on Earth were observed, we're going really back to the 1950s. And beforehand, and when we look at, for example, the impact on communication systems at the time, we're looking mostly at things like telegraphs and overland telephone lines. And if you go back to these days, you're looking at very, very, very long wires, literally telegraph poles, the same with telephone wires and this sort of thing. And, you know, obviously, a lot of radio communication sort of from about the first third of 20th century onwards. And when you look back at that time, you see that all of those technologies are in a particular place where they're particularly vulnerable to charged particles. So, for example, as uh, you know, you already mentioned, say, for example, actually, it goes back to the 1850s. This is where it was first sort of shown to exist but first had the really sort of bad impact on communications that came along with the communication technology, obviously, or the widespread use of communication technology, and also with the widespread deployment of power grids. And we didn't have that all that much in the 1850s. So it was really the 20th century when it started to badly hurt people. And there's really two common factors. One common factor is extremely long wires. And the thing with the long wires is basically the longer you make a wire, the more when it's exposed to a stream of charged particles, the more current you get induced into the wire. And that's really proportional to the amount of damage you can do at the end of the wire where your uh, communications equipment sits. Similarly with power grids, the uh, longer the power grids are, the, the more interconnected they are, the more they run you know, over ground, the more they're susceptible to problems. But when you're then going into radio communications, again, in that day and age, a lot of it was on shortwave. And again, there you're aligned on stuff like propagation in the ionosphere. And again, that's very, very susceptible to what's happening on the sun. If you fast forward to today, our long-range communication networks are actually fiber-based. That's pretty much immune to any kind of solar interference. You're looking also at maybe problems with, say, end equipment. But again, a lot of that's no longer transformer-based. It's now switch mode power supply-based. So again, this is a more robust kind of system that's not as susceptible to, uh, to interference. You know, computers basically live off very, very short connections and very short wires. So again, we've moved the opposite way here a little bit. And um, so, so yeah, so we're not as susceptible as we used to be, but power grids are to an extent still an issue. Also, countries, for example, that still run a lot of overhead power grid, especially at a local level, they tend to be a bit more susceptible. For example, I've recently visited Japan, where uh, overhead power lines are still extremely common, even in the, you know in the big cities. That's a bit more susceptible than you know, say, the country I'm, you're, you're currently talking to me, and I'm I happen to be in Germany at the moment where there's very, very little overland in the local distribution network, very little overland uh, power lines. Most of it's undergrounded here.
2: So the length of the wire also impacts the frequency, right? And because lower frequencies are actually the frequency it picks up, right? Or is that not? I would think that the longer the wire, the lower the frequency it picks up. Lower frequencies carry farther. Therefore, the power is more. Whereas with shorter wires, it's just a wavelength thing. No, no, doesn't really matter. I mean, the new okay. problem is caused
3: by potential differences between parts of the uh, grid, and that causes a lot of industrial called blind uh, electricity streams, and that actually is very can be very violent. I mean, if you remember the. Power grid going down, it's northeast America, and nobody knew what really happened. But nobody has been local disturbance of exactly that element. So um, that was
1: 89?
3: Yes, that's a famous one. But it happens all the time. In 2003 or 4, I forget which date, parts of the power grid of South Africa blew up because it has formed, could handle the extra currents, and things like that. I say it I mean, do happen a lot. And, uh, I mean, even in big power grids, like European power grids, and I do remember disturbance on the power grid, which happened 12 years ago, something like that. It was kind of interesting because one of the main feats in Germany was switched off for maintenance. Uh, the other one, it was taken off by another one. But they were also moving a ship on the Elbe, and they didn't realize that they would hit the big power line, the Hamid KP power line. And so, and so out went the backup. Uh, that caused kind of a weird uh, ripple effect on Europe, because these things are combined together because... You, know, you want to have the phase and the frequency everywhere the same. And yeah. And the ripple went up, the, the, it was felt up into uh, Morocco. But that brings you to what something what uh, also mentioned. I mean, having uh, isolation of various parts of the grid actually helps in this case because uh, you don't have these problems then. The same with the fiber optics uh, do help as well, although fiber cables also have power uh, next to it to have the amplifiers on the ocean give power. So it doesn't really always help, but fragmentation helps in this case of the create the dependencies. But it does happens all the time. Actually, just today I saw a study published. Where they look at the differences of the ionosphere layers, because they are multiple layers. Now, in political and what influence it has on the power grid and how they have to defend against this. I mean, it has to do not only with the power grid or the long lines itself, but also has to do with the geological, the earth itself, when there's a lot of uh, iron in the earth things are different because it's not only the ionization, it's also geomagnetic storms which is caused by this because what happens is the magnetic field of the Earth is actually being pushed away a bit, and that means moving uh, magnetic fields always cause problems in other things like electric fields.
1: So, spacecraft. There's two qualities here that would be concerning. There's the sort of more physical aspect. This stuff presumably causes arcing in technology that's up there, which means there's potential for it to actually interfere with computer systems or with solar cell arrays or with antenna systems. That must surely shorten the life of the devices. Yeah, it is a problem. That's why all these chips are so much higher And But there are two things.
3: One is the, the big cameras and other the X-rays, which are actually instantaneously. These are very hard to p- predict. And if you can predict them, you tell the people in the international space to sit behind the water tank, so they like, don't get hit that much. I mean, this is short-lived. And, yeah, in that's what when people. You often see it coming. I mean, the speed it goes is 500 to 1500 kilometers uh, per second. So the, you see it coming, the days it comes. And what you can do is turn off some of the stuff, move antennas away from uh, where it comes. I mean, of course, if it really hits the earth, I mean, it might go everywhere, these things. Uh, and it can miss the Earth as well. So you can do preventive uh, things, but yes, it can blow up uh, satellites because it at least disturbs when it passes for a couple of days.
1: So Ulrich, does it also have an influence on the drag aspects of the satellites? Does it perturb their orbits and materially affect their duration in space?
0: Not really. Mostly what you're getting is you're getting these streams of Charged particles, but it's not like it's a huge density. It's not like somebody's throwing a you know bucket of water or something like this with a, with a lot of mass. So it doesn't alter the density of not, not really. What you get, obviously, is you get, for example. If you have to reorient a spacecraft in order to position it so it's going to weather a storm like this, this is going to have an effect on the fuel uh, you know, balance on the spacecraft. And so it does shorten the lifetime from that perspective because it means that uh, it can't do station keeping for quite as long into its life if you're always having to reposition it in order to dodge uh, solar storms. So that has a bit of an effect, but that's relatively
1: minor. So it's solar events. We're observing the sun all the time, we understand the mechanics here, so we have lead time, which means we can adjust certain behaviors, but then there's the non-deterministic aspects of how it interacts with the Earth and the effect it has on systems. It's a warning, but with no strong ability to state exactly what it's going to do. I get that it's not exactly game over at 11 o'clock. I can understand you're saying that it's been bigged up into some idea of a massive worldwide problem if we had a huge CME event. But nonetheless, it doesn't exactly sound good. No, of course it doesn't exactly sound good. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: Yaps pointed out the big problem area still tends to be power grids and anything that gets fed with power. Now, We're in a much, much better position there than we used to be, say, 50 years ago when everything was directly fed from transformers. Now we tend to have things like UPSs and other devices sort of in the system. And all of that sort of tends to add to resilience. The other thing, of course, that at least in parts of the world, also dealing with is we're having, in some places, very, very large long power grids where there's a a lot of wire between the place where power is generated and the place where the power is being used. So all of that basically makes it rather difficult to regulate generation versus use. Then in other places, It's fairly close by. And for example, the uh, South African example is one of those where a lot of generations actually happening far away from the big cities. Basically, you know, the power stations tend to be where the coal mines are and uh, consumption tends to be where the gold mines are, (laughs) sort of flippantly speaking. But in terms of communication systems, it's really mostly satellites that tend to be affected by it. And you're literally looking at a bit of an avalanche effect there. You're sort of seeing the avalanche, know triggered up the hill somewhere and you know it's coming and you know it's gonna uh, shower some snow on you but you can't really tell how much snow it's gonna be and what exactly it's gonna hit because that's gonna depend on what it's gonna hit when it's gonna get down and Similarly, we're seeing those eruptions on the sun, that's the observable, but we have nothing really in between that can tell us, uh, you know, how many particles were released and how it's all behaving. And so we kind of have to wait until it gets here, until we can tell (laughs) what the impact is. But by that point, it's a bit too late.
1: (laughs) So the situation we've had in Australia that is not solar event related is that we had storm perturbation of the long line grid that connects our states together and we had isolating I don't know what the jargon is in Europe but here it's called islanding so some of the states had to deliberately cut because they couldn't maintain frequency stability and they were islanded And then, with loss of transmission systems, they'd been depending on interstate connectors to provide the resiliency. So, in effect, it was the we can protect against one fault but not two problem. But then the third fault emerges We call it Black Start, powering up a power network from nothing. You need electricity to excite components of the mechanism to make it possible to make electricity. And there are scheduled suppliers of Black Start capability who are meant to be able to turn on. It's kind of a bit like when you have a diesel generator as spare power in your data center. And the thing is, if you don't turn the diesel system over every now and then, it doesn't start when you want it to. And that is precisely what happened to us. The gas turbine Black Start facilities in South Australia didn't work. They weren't able to fulfill the obligations. So this power network thing is kind of a weird combination of cascading effects. It's got qualities that it could be a very small break, and it could have quite wide-ranging consequence if it hits enough pieces and you start to get things stacking up together as a system-wide effect. I know that is to some extent catastrophizing, so I get that this is, to all intents and purposes, a hypothetical more than a current problem, but I can't help thinking if there was a sufficiently large event, we might be surprised at how long it took us to come back from it.
2: Well, I think we're looking at like three different systems or four different systems here, right? The one is Electrical, because electrical is, has a lot of exposed wiring, although a lot of it's buried now and would be less acceptable. But still, there's still a lot of overhead wiring in the world. And in-houses, we can't forget that in houses and stuff, that wiring is not necessarily going to be perfect as far as protected from these kinds of storms. The Second would be satellite systems and satellite communications. The third would be just straight comm systems, just like long wire ethernet sitting in building walls and stuff like that. So you have like three or four different things here that all interact. And if you get a big enough storm, you don't really know what that interaction is going to look like until it actually happens. You, You can postulate, oh, well, this system will do this and that's it. But they interact. They're not independent things as much as we like to think they are. Yeah. I mean, there's a thought system in the world as well. Because people, all of them, radio
3: amateurs, says, oh, we can use the radio for emergency. Well, if it's really a heavy storm, the radio stops working as well because of the disturbance in the ionosphere. At least by locally means size of the fence or something like that. You know, the difference between how big these things are. Because something like the Kerton effect actually happens again in 1920s in Mongolia. But we're not there were no telegraphs there. There was no power created. So only in hindsight, you can reconstruct that there was a big storm there. But it was nothing that was breaking down. So more things going on than people know and can match it. But that's why you have to know our satellites. I mean, looking at these things of ions and things in the sun and other things, and people in the solar astronomy try to predict when and where these explosions will take place and uh, whether they go beyond uh, the corona or fall back again. So, And that's hard.
1: So do they relate to sunspot cycles?
3: They do relate to some spot cycles. The chance of getting CMEs are actually followed some spot cycle of eleven years, and we are now reaching a maximum of two years. And you see that there are more and more sun weather events. I mean, I think two weeks ago, actually in Colorado. You could see auroras, which you normally don't see. And I saw this winter in uh, here in the Netherlands, fake auroras, which are not, which you don't normally see. They predict that the next uh, maximum is around two years, but how heavy that will be, nobody knows. Because they actually predicted it would be weaker than last cycle, but it seems to be actually less weaker than they started what's up. So
1: So we're two years off the predicted peak in an 11-year cycle. We are just at the point of starting to achieve maximum saturation we have ever had in low Earth orbit of many, many devices. We have Starlink, we have the European Communities Initiative, we have Baidu, we have growth in the medium orbit because we have the second tier of Starlink that are meant to be providing the inter-satellite connectivity grid to provide satellite to satellite rather than just bent pipe. We might have normal levels of geo, and we probably have less dependency on geo, but that's treating this as a comms problem. We're actually really dependent on remote sensing these days. Yeah. It's important.
3: But you have to realize that those Leo satellites are actually moving much, uh, much faster way these storms are pretty local. They don't uh, go over the whole Earth, so not all parts of the kids will be uh, hit at the same time.
1: I mean, unless it's getting really gigantic, but then probably nothing will help. But, uh, but for some duration, there would be an isolation point in the Earth's geomagnetic system. As satellites move through it, people would be experiencing disconnection if they depended on that technology.
3: Yeah, but that's what happens all the time. I mean, radio silence happening uh, on a regular basis because of solar winds, and which people don't really realize. But that's happening all the time. But I also say there's no reason for panic.
1: Muted panic. I might drink my tea a little bit quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact,
0: talking about... Catastrophic events and drinking tea. And this reminds me of a situation that we had in Auckland around oh, about twenty years ago, when our entire central business district was without power for quite a few weeks. And also yeah. sort of reminds me of what you said, George, about sort of uh, you know various capacities sort of falling over like dominoes. And uh, on that particular occasion, the uh, local grid company had a um, number of lines running into the CBD. Two or three of them were out for maintenance, and then there was another one that got damaged by a digger. Then they had about three of them left, and the damage to one of those was subsequently then done by their own communications department, because they... Hooray! uh, I'm I'm, I'm talking about their media people, because they sort of decided that a good way of uh, saving energy was to tell people to turn off their PCs and have a cuppa instead. But of course, what uh, you do in New Zealand when you have a cuppa, you go to your uh, zip device, uh, Russ and uh, yeah probably won't know about, but it's essentially an electric hot water heater that sits on the wall. So uh, your whatever, 100, 150 watt of power consumption of your PC was immediately replaced with about 2000 watts running off your wall. And so as a result of that, people all, all made themselves a cuppa very, very urgently and they managed to deploy the next cable. And so they had only one or two cables left Going into the central business district, and at that point, it was basically load shedding and powering essential services only. A university where I worked, its the biggest campus in the, in the central city. The entire campus, by the computer center, was <laughs> shut down, and everybody was told to go home and work from home. And I was working at a satellite campus at the time, and every spare square meter of room on that campus was made available for people who literally had to take refuge from um, the center of city, from their mail rooms to, to everything else. And that whole thing went on for about three weeks until they could very hastily construct an overland power line along a railway track to the city. And until it was fully resolved, uh, it was, was was several years um, until they had a new tunnel with new cables built into the city. The effect can be quite substantial. It can be quite long lasting, especially when you get into a situation where you have power lines blowing up. And this is Again, we're having something that's overhead is easier to fix because it's accessible than something that you have below ground. If you have a below ground power line, and these aren't just wires, these are actually wires that sit in a pressurized inert gas environment, and they need to be pressurized in order to operate. And then just repressurizing those and even just getting enough of them and laying them and, you know, all of that, that took a long time to get right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would be worried that the resiliency of a supply chain for things like replacement transformers and transformer fluids and cables of this spec would be a significant problem. I mean, Ever Given kind of made us just a little bit sensitive to the resilience of supply chains. Very much so. And we saw this, in fact, firsthand
0: earlier in the year with a Cyclone Gabrielle in New Zealand where, in fact, both power and communications were lost to large parts of the New Zealand North Island, especially the Hawke's Bay and and Northland, so Hawke's Bay is the areas of between Napier and Dispen and up to East Cape, and where basically the same bridges that were carrying power and backhaul fiber got washed away, and roads got washed away, and so we ended up in a situation where the civil defense people didn't realize how important communication was. And so local mobile networks, for example, wanted to go and recommission cell sites that had been disconnected, uh, you know, both from power and from backhaul connectivity. They were met with civil defense officials who basically didn't realize that their radios and those areas are literally just mobile phones didn't work because these people were wanting to restore the sites that made them work. So they ended up in a situation where, you know, once that sort of had been realized that a lot of helicopter capacity that would have been needed for search and rescue was actually needed not only to fly people to cell phone sites, remote cell phone sites, in order to start them back up again and to fly generators into those sites because they'd run out of battery power because their mains got disconnected. But also, in the following days, they had to go and actually refuel these sites by helicopter because the generators didn't last that long either. And so, a lot of helicopter capacity was tied down by the need to keep the communication network going because it didn't have the power resiliency that it should have had. There's been a lot of debate around this in the last few months and a lot of finger pointing from you know, various parties involved. As to, uh, you know, who's to blame and, you know, what we might do in order to uh, avoid a repeat. But then, you know, people suddenly realize, and again, talking supply chains here, that when you don't have communication, one of the things, for example, that disappears is your ability to make electronic payments. Now, you know, electronic payments aren't just internet banking transactions. They're also point of sale. And in New Zealand, for example, very few people still use cash. So we had the situation where people would uh, go to their local building supply store and say, hey, you know, we need a few pieces of wood in order to, you know, fix things around the house or the farm that got damaged by the floods. And the building supply store said, well, we're terribly sorry, We can't sell you anything because you haven't got cash. And we can't take electronic payments, and supermarkets couldn't take electronic payments, and everything depended on this, and everything then started interlocking. And that's really what you've been hinting at, because it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, tends to make life really, really difficult if you haven't planned for it in advance. And this is where sort of small effects sometimes can sort of mushroom a little
3: bit. People ask me about oh, what's going to happen here and there, the radio communication. I mean, it's a combination of stuff which makes things weird. It's not just the internet going down, or just it is all the service connected to it. And that's actually a bit of the worry is that now we are way more connected than how much years ago, and things will hit harder than even if it, it will actually hit harder. So that's if you don't have to prepared for it.
1: I wonder if we can make one of these solar cycles line up with the 2038 Unix time field problem and have Y2K combined with... No, I don't think that would be a sensible idea. So, Yarp, when you say we get notice, it's days, it's weeks, it's hours. It stays for the
3: heavier ions hitting the Earth. What you see, you've got got mass explosive events. That's what you easily see in the sun. These things are big. These are really big. And that's the couple of satellites continuously watching the sun. SO is one, STEREO is another one, uh, the SDO is another one, and the people see that immediately. And what you also see is that here is the, the North American Atmosphere, uh, the NOAA satellite, continuously measuring the X rays and other stuff, and these go very fast, that's seconds, so they see that something is coming. And then often you can see whether or not which direction it takes because these are bundles, and it's not necessary that everything around them will be touched. But there was a big CME about a couple of weeks ago but it went in the direction of Mars so people hardly notice except from some uh, radio uh, fallouts and uh, and you see that more or less coming. Now the one, one What you see is that this is often generated by sunspots or in close neighborhood of sunspots and you see these are coming so these are continuously being watched and when they Turn from the back of the sun to the front. means always hmm, Which way will the sun go from that uh, same spot? So that's what people can do. This uh, actually for people interested is just sunweather.com, which is a site and which continuously tells you about this and uh, also about the hours and things like that. There are multiple sites on you can actually. Find on on the web, which deal with this. And uh, so that's, uh, if you want more information, there's a wealth of information of uh, and how these things happen. And this, another thing is that one of the things that the movements of ions here happens has an influence on how well the GPS signals will work. And so these are continuously measured as well. So, there's a lot more measurements going on than you think. Actually, Japanese just published a paper that they could see from uh, the behavior of the ionosphere and the GPS when North Korea is launching yet another rocket. That's how close they can actually watch in this stuff. So, if there's readings of the series going on, people will notice. The only thing is what they don't want is what. Ulrich involved that it when the media gets hold on it and started to
1: panic and make stuff worse. So, there is, of course, the other potential source of disruption to the telecommunications network which Ulrich has gently reminded me about, which is not solar in origin.
0: But, indeed, uses pretty much the, uh, <laughs> this, the same effect, and these are nuclear electromagnetic pulses. And those are an effect that was observed quite widely during the nuclear tests, especially in the Pacific in the 1950s and 1960s and, uh, you know, into later decades. And so the idea there is that you basically have a nuclear bomb and uh, you make it go off and that causes a very, very strong electromagnetic pulse. And the effects there are quite similar to what you'd normally expect in a solar storm. And a quite bad one, and so people were starting to notice that, for example, teletypes were uh, you know starting to play up, and telegraph equipment and telephone equipment was getting fried, you know, even hundreds or even thousands of kilometers away from those uh, specific test sites, and uh, you know up to the point where people sort of started speculating that this might be used as a weapon against grids worldwide, and you know rather than nuking people. Send the weapon into space and NEMP their infrastructure. So, NEMP and nuclear electromagnetic pulses, that's the uh, abbreviation for it. And so, uh, what happened in response to this is that a lot of the militaries around the planet will realize that they were using electronics. They started hardening their electronics against nuclear electromagnetic uh, pulse interference. And this is obviously something that's uh, you know still being done. But at the same time, the question is, would civilian infrastructure be? And again, we're probably ending up at, uh, you know, the power or the greatest, most vulnerable piece of equipment there. And, you know, these days, the specter of nuclear war isn't, you know, as far away anymore as it was maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But, uh, you know, at the same time, what sort of made us more resilient against space weather in the last few decades is also what's making us a bit more resilient against this sort of thing. Although, you know, obviously, if it were to happen, it would Probably be quite a substantial escalation, uh, you know, on the international scale, and um, I think we
1: might have other problems to worry about. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, that's all very interesting. The whole optical thing was a little confusing for a minute there, but yeah, it's all very interesting, and I think it is something that, particularly, I think where we started this, George, which is the low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, high Earth orbit, or geosync stuff, are really probably where we're going to see a lot of the impact for the immediate future that would be my guess of anything like this and then you know secondarily it's going to be in power lines and then perhaps again i still see in building wiring is still a problem in some cases i would think because you still get like radio signals still pass through wireless signals can still pass through walls and stuff so you but might lose house to- yeah
0: you you generally need very, very long wires in order to pick up sufficient voltage to cause a problem. Uh, and typically, what's in building won't be quite long enough in order to cause you serious issues. Because, I mean, with buildings, you have other, you know, sources of uh, pulses as well. Um, lightning, for example, is a very common one. And um, most systems are designed around at least some level of resilience against that. I mean, that said, if your building gets hit by lightning, chances are that there will be damage to electronic equipment in, inside the building. I mean, the very building I'm sitting in here at in the moment has been hit by lightning. The neighboring buildings here have been hit by lightning because it's at the top of a hill, and there's been damage in every single incident. Despite the well, fact that
1: Ulrich, you're on the lowest bandwidth. Coincidence? I don't think so.
0: <laughs> That's got <laughs> other reasons. <laughs> Which have more to do with German telecoms regulations, administrative district boundaries than anything else. <laughs> but uh, that's a longer story.
1: <laughs> well, Jaap, Ulrich, Ross, thank you very much. That was really fascinating.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having us, George. I hope we shed some light on uh, what's happening. And don't, and one of the policies is don't get. It panic mode for this, because that's what people tend to do. And uh, last time we were reading uh, the, the Sun uh, Spot magazine, uh, you saw the BBC had it on the news. There were a couple of news outlets making a lot of noise about it and without actually explaining what's happening. So. You have to watch that,
1: especially… We're probably more in be alert but not alarmed. The potential lies there for an event to be larger than we planned for, and the consequence lies there for it to be more widespread than we thought. But perhaps we should be more prepared than concerned.
0: Mm. That's a a very, very important point. Resilience is something that you need to plan for, and that you need to invest in, and that you need to design into the systems that you build. I mean, going back to the Cyclone Gabrielle thing for a moment, there was actually one particular telecoms provider in New Zealand that was almost unaffected in the area by any of this except that they weren't a consumer provider. And this is the former Broadcasting New Zealand uh, BCNZ uh, successor, Cordia. And they're basically a backhaul internet service provider and they use mostly wireless connections between hillsides. And they were originally building these hillsides in order to keep the Radio New Zealand broadcasting network working. And that's always been the emergency broadcaster for New Zealand. And uh, so they built sites that you can literally run for months completely autonomously and unattended. And they've been doing this for decades. And they had no significant outages in the entire area because they were basically sitting on a network that was designed to deal with events like this. And everybody else was basically just putting consumer-grade vulnerable stuff in that relied on the local mains power to come in almost continuously. And that was designed for only sort of small outages like car running into power pole type stuff where, you know, you're back up and running eight hours later. So so if you plan for it, if you design for it, and yes, it does cost a little bit more under some circumstances, at least, and in other cases, it's just a matter of keeping parts diverse and having one cable running this way and the other cable running a completely different route to give you resiliency and stuff like that. When you put this in at the design phase, then that makes the communications grid, a power grid, much, much more resilient. And this is the sort of the solutions that we really need to start looking for. It's not solutions, you know, along the lines of, oh, you know, we're going to panic with the space weather. How oh, we are going to all put a tinfoil hat you know, on top of Mother Earth? This is not going to work right. We need to make sure that we're designed for uh, resiliency and that we also have a look at what the knock-on effects are, where it hits the supply chains. Where that causes trouble further downstream. And that's clearly something that New Zealand's just learned very, very hard as a lesson, and very publicly
1: so. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at or via the APNIC social media channels? Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.